Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Sabina Alcar to the podcast. Sabine is the director of the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, an economic research centre within the Oxford Department of International Development. She's a professor in international affairs at the George Washington University and a fellow of the Human Development and Capability Association. With fellow economist James Foster, she developed the Alcar Foster Method, a flexible technique that measures poverty, incorporating a broad range of different dimensions that constitute poor people's experience of deprivation, such as poor health, lack of education, inadequate living standard, lack of income, disempowerment, poor quality of work and threat from violence. Thank you very much, Sabina, for taking the time to speak today to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. No, it's it's lovely to be with you. Thank you. Great. So I'm 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 really looking forward to talking to you about the important work you're doing in the whole area of uh, measuring uh, poverty and uh, and the, and the work you're doing at the Oxford Department of International Development and elsewhere. Um, I guess a good place to start would be if you just tell us a little bit about you know what 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 your role is today. Yes, I direct a research centre in the Department of International Development in Oxford University uh, called OFI, the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative. It's 10 years old. And we work, in a sense, to try to advance Amartya Sen's capability approach and, and find ways of measuring and advancing creative measures of poverty that reflect, in a sense, poor people's experiences of poverty as they have articulated them in different uh, fora. Right, right, and 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 so measuring poverty um, now. Wh- why is that important? And 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 in in what way, in what ways have we been looking at this? The question of of, of measuring poverty, and, and 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 can you talk about the the work you're doing on multidimensional, you know, poverty and and and, and broader measures and what why that's important. Yeah, so it is my area that I work on, and I think it's important. I'll come to why, but actually what's more important is to end poverty, um, to change uh, the deprivations and the suffering and the miseries that are unnecessarily experienced by so many. And taking a step back from that, what a measure does at its best is provide information that's more or less accurate to people who are in positions to make decisions about resource allocation, policy design, uh, activities and interventions that would most effectively um, reduce or end poverty. Uh, So that is why and how we came to focus on measures of poverty, not as an end in itself, Yes. although we think about them, think about their axiomatic properties, think about, you know, their integrity. Yes. But they are very much means to an end. Yes. and why the measures are important, partly it's because there was a bit of a gap in the market. Um, the word poverty was associated primarily with deprivations of a monetary kind, and these remain very important, and it's, it's vital to measure consumption and expenditure poverty or income poverty. But speaking with poor people, naturally their lives are complex, and they speak of a range of different interlocking or interlinked deprivations that strike them together. 
And these are also quite familiar deprivations of education or nutrition or access to health care or um, decent work or uh, housing, water and sanitation and different services. But what is distinctive about a multidimensional measure of poverty is that it doesn't look at these only one by one, which other social indicators have done, but it really looks at them from the perspective of the person who's experiencing them. And the basic building block of a multidimensional measure is the profile of simultaneous deprivations that each poor person is experiencing. So it's, it's, it includes many non-monetary indicators and dimensions, but it also includes them as they are, you know, overlapping in a person's life. Right, right. Now, you mentioned that the, the goal is clearly to, to eliminate poverty. How are we doing? And I know that um, the Millennium Development Goals have variously been uh, lauded for the work that's been done in anti-poverty, a reduction of poverty. And I think uh, the UN you know, described it as the most successful anti-poverty movement in history. And you do uh, see people talking about uh, the great results that, that were achieved. How do you evaluate that? I think that that's, in a sense, true, that there have been accelerations in the speed of reduction of really unacceptable deprivations, like malnutrition, like children dying before their time, or not having even a primary or basic education. And these are things we really need to eradicate, <laughs> kinds of deprivations. Um, and in multidimensional poverty terms as well, we do see significant, statistically significant reductions in many, many countries. So in a study, our first study, which was 34 countries and 2.5 billion people, in 30 of them, there were statistically significant reductions in multidimensional poverty. Um, only Madagascar saw an increase in multidimensional poverty. Um, and... A country like Nepal, a least developed low-income country, actually topped the list with the fastest reduction overall of poverty in all its dimensions. So it, it, it turns up unusual, um, perhaps, leaders, as well as some countries you would expect, like Bangladesh or Ghana, that also did very well in reducing their poverty, Rwanda as well. Right, right. So uh, when you... Uh, broaden out the lens it 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 shows different things as as you say and is it very different from the traditional uh, insights you get from using the more standard measures it really is uh, and that's an empirical question and so we answer it with empirical evidence there's there's nothing you know otherwise um, but when we compare the reductions in mpi with the reductions of a dollar 90 a day poverty um, in other countries, some have had, um, like Nepal, had very strong reductions in both because of its great remittances and uh, how it protects, in a sense, social expenditure despite, despite you know, not always having, having a quite rapid succession of governments. Yes. Um, but other countries have strong reductions in multidimensional poverty, but not the same, like Rwanda, not the same reductions in monetary poverty. And others have, you know, an increase in one and a decrease in the other. So we think of it in terms of two eyes. With two eyes, you see in three dimensions, you see depth, you see, you know, much more than you do if you walk around with an eye patch on. Right, and yes. the two measures of poverty, the monetary and the multidimensional, helps you to see the changing face of poverty um, more, more clearly, more accurately. 
That's very interesting. And and to what extent then does uh, the multidimensional measure also suggest different kind of policy measures, perhaps? And I don't know whether uh, you uh, can talk a little bit about the SDGs. I know this is one of the goals. And um, when you when you uh, include a multidimensional poverty measure, does that suggest different kind of uh, focus? It does. And in a sense, it also came out of the Millennium Development Goals, um, where there was a recognition that um, by the chief economist of the World Bank, then um, François Bourguignon and other co-authors, that uh, economic growth per se, and also a reduction in then $1.25 income poverty, is not necessarily correlated at all with reductions in child mortality and gender parity and primary school attendance um, and in nutritional gains. And that is because, in a sense, different policies act on them, um, with more of the social policies um, acting in, in to address uh, some of the non-monetary deprivations. But although that sounds, you know, it, it can cut both ways, I think it's a little bit empowering in that if you put a child into school, um, it takes years before that child contributes to the workforce, has an income, and changes income poverty. But if you're monitoring in an MPI in a multidimensional poverty index, child school attendance as one of the indicators, then if you put a child in school the next year, the multidimensional poverty measure changes. And so it's a much more sensitive instrument to the social policies than a monetary measure where there are you know, significant lags in between investments in social policy and a change in monetary poverty. Right. So our hope is that uh, by providing more just-in-time feedback, it can also help to accelerate, to change policy designs, to provide positive feedback where there's really been success and and so be useful to the fight. Right, right, and presumably useful to the SDGs more generally in the sense that um, you know, education, um, access to you know, health and, uh, and other uh, measures like that are important as well and would be captured in this measure. Yes, I mean, with the SDGs, the first goal is to end poverty in all its forms yes. everywhere. So it's not only ending yes. extreme poverty, income poverty, but also poverty in all its forms and dimensions. And that's a sea shift which is sustained across the SDG agenda of viewing poverty in many forms and dimensions. And so an MPI helps to do that. But also the SDG agenda has advocated breaking policy silos. It's advocated multi-sectoral and integrated policies. And the reason for this is that it found in the Millennium Development Goal agenda, the countries that had been most successful in accelerating change in the Millennium Development Goals uh, across them, had addressed them together synergistically. And so in the SDG framework, there's a recognition that there are linkages across the SDG targets, goals, and indicators. And an MPI, because it draws together, in a sense, at least a small handful of priority goals, targets, and indicators, um, it helps to foster that multisectoral uh, policy. And the reason is that policymakers in the Ministry of Health, Education, housing, work, employment, whatever, they may, if they're looking at their indicators one by one, compete. But if they have a, an, a common indicator that they are all fighting, um, they can see how they might be able to work together and move the needle that much faster. And so hopefully that's the value added that the MPI will bring uh, in, the, in terms of the policy discourse 
uh, over just a dashboard of important indicators. Right, right, right. Um, and how how well established now is the MPI? And are there, uh, I won't say competing, but uh, other measures which are um, uh, growing or uh, popular uh, to deal, to explore broader measures of, of poverty? Yes. So in terms of poverty measurement, the methodology was developed with James Foster, who's very well known in income poverty measurement for the foster Gur thorbeck uh, index, which he also co-authored. And it's a very simple and intuitive and yet axiomatically rigorous, because James is a fantastic theorist, um, measure. That methodology then was taken up by UNDP to do a global multidimensional poverty index, which is implemented for nearly as many countries as the $1.90 index and reported you know, this year for 5.4 billion people. And the global MPI um, gives a, a common indicator across over 100 countries, across nearly 1,000 subnational regions, across age groups showing that half of the world's poor are children, across ethnic groups or households with people having disability status. So it's a, it's a common tool. Um, and then complementing that, just like we have the $1.90 a day measure, like the global MPI that can be compared, uh, many national governments are developing their own national MPIs that add different indicators or different standards according to their own ambitions. So Mexico, Colombia, um, Bhutan, Ecuador, Panama, uh, Pakistan, Mozambique, Armenia, many different countries in different regions have official permanent national MPIs alongside their monetary statistics. Um, And there was also a, a little bit of a boost from a commission that the World Bank established last year um, that released his report last year that was chaired by the late and beloved Sir Tony Atkinson. Um, and the commission really looked at measures of monetary poverty and multidimensional poverty. And it did validate um, this as being a methodology to be considered to look at the multidimensional overlapping deprivations people experience. So methodologically, um, this seems to be useful, but what really varies and where the creative creativity comes in and is very welcome is how it is implemented. So the global MPI, for example, takes the household as the unit of identification because those are the data that we have. But in Europe with the EU silk, one could take the individual as the unit of identification. And in Mexico, they do that. And some academic studies also look at individual level data when that's possible. Many times it's not. Um, in Latin America, the national MPIs all include work, which was not possible for the global MPI because of data limitations. In Chile, they include environment and social capital. In El Salvador, they include violence. So uh, in Panama and Dominican Republic, they include access to the Internet. So each country can really express the, the face of poverty in a way that's appropriate because the methodology is very flexible. You can put in the indicators that matter to you. So that's, in a sense, where we we do see a lot of uh, important innovations coming up. Right, right. And and I guess also makes the challenge of comparisons. Um, Is is there a a kind of MPI standard or MPI basic and then other measures? um, Yes, the global MPI has three dimensions, health, education and living standard. And those are, in a sense, the minimum. And I think every MPI to date includes those three dimensions, not with the same names, 
Yes. But they all have some health indicators or the intention to obtain them. They all have education. They all have something about uh, living standards, whether it's water and sanitation and electricity and housing or whether it's a, a slightly different bundle. Yes. Um, but yes, uh, and the global MPI can be compared across the countries. There's also a Latin American MPI and an Arab MPI that can be compared for the region. So those are done by the statistical offices, ESQUA and CEPAL of those regions. Great. And are they being built in then into the SDGs? So many countries um, have articulated the intention to report them against indicator 1.2.2 in the Sustainable Development Goals um, under target 1.2, which is to have the number of men, women and children living in poverty in all its dimensions um, by national definitions. So far, actually, it's it's quite interesting. It's not been possible for countries to report because of the 232 SDG indicators. This is the only indicator for which national governments are the custodian agency. There's actually no way for them to report at the moment, but we're hoping that that will change and that an international agency will, will come in and you know, support the reporting of this indicator. But there's very much a strong intention and a strong understanding that the national MPI helps countries to prioritize their SDGs and to address them together. Right. So uh, there's we, we see a strong synergy uh, coming out. Yes. And if you're measuring uh, the, uh, the traditional measure of poverty and you're looking at policy levers and things that you can do um, and then you broaden this to, to look at the MPI, what does that suggest about, does that make the, the uh, challenge of dealing with uh, poverty in this broader sense more complex? And uh, do, do, we, do we have information? Because presumably people have been working and agencies have been working with these measures and have some sense of how they operate for some time. But with a new measure like this, or a relatively new measure, um, uh, maybe less track record, less, less understanding of you know, how to uh, move the needle on this. Yes, I think that's fair because many, this is a new index. Um, it's what, seven years old. And uh, so it takes time for people, especially people trained some time ago to become comfortable with a new toolkit uh, and a new idea. Uh, and so it's, you know, it, it will continue to take some time, I think, until people see the benefits. I find that, really the cutting edge is with the countries. And the leadership, for example, of President Santos in Colombia has been to use the MPI as a coordinating tool of his government to set very bravely a target and then to develop uh, management structures of accountability uh, and you know, meetings and committees and dashboards um, to be able to have evidence-responsive policymaking and to meet the target. And so that's a, a very cutting edge set of management tools that are linked to the MPI. And in Costa Rica, there's a very good tool, a set of tools around budget allocation. And in a number of countries, very good tools around turning the MPI into a targeting device. So we have a network now with 53 participating countries where they're sharing with each other how they're learning to use the MPI. And yes, it will take time, but there's a kind of a genuineness and a kind of a committed passion, really, among some of these leaders that I find refreshing when it comes to really trying to tackle important problems in, in innovative ways. I think the other uh, aspect of an MPI, which is often misunderstood, is the data needs. So an income or a consumption poverty measure has usually at a minimum 400 
<clears throat> questions from a survey that it uses, and sometimes up to a thousand. And so people think, well, if you have 10 dimensions, you must need many more survey questions. So it must be very expensive to get the data. But the global MPI uses 39 questions. Colombia's national MPI uses 45 questions. The MPI that uses the most number of questions to date is Costa Rica's, which uses 77. So actually the data needs for an MPI are much less than for consumption poverty. And also the computational um, time and complexity of an MPI is less than monetary poverty measures. And so that's because of the need for inflation adjustments, CPIs, um, and if you're comparing across countries, purchasing power parities that make uh, monetary poverty really an art. Um, and in comparison, MPIs, it's more transparent, but it's also easier and faster to compute. So I think sharing that with people uh, goes against their initial impression that it would be more data heavy and more difficult to compute. But when they realize that, then I think they become much more comfortable with it. Yes, yes. And I don't know, are there one or two policies that uh, you spring to mind that when you use a, a simple measure of poverty that you, you're doing the wrong thing or you're, you're you know, I guess just by putting the lens, the, a more multidimensional lens on it, does it show up uh, shortcomings of certain policies that may have been followed over, you know, or maybe established uh, ways of thinking or legacies about how to deal with poverty? Yes. And again, here, I mean, I'm an economist and a geek. And so I'm on a learning curve and I'm learning from the people who are doing the policy work. Yes. But yes. there was roundtable among ministers in Colombia, roundtable among ministers in, in Mexico about how they are using the work. And one thing that struck, for example, the Minister of Health in Colombia said, after I came to meetings where we were all sitting around the table and trying to change the MPI, I realized that even to obtain my goal of health, I needed the cooperation of the Minister of Transport, the Minister of Education, the Minister of Water. And I realized that, you know, even health itself required a multi-sectoral, in a sense, approach, not using the fancy language, but just uh, the, the on-the-ground realities. And so a little bit of the, you know, recognizing the many facets of, of each indicator and dimension uh, and learning about them and then learning how teams can attack them together that to me is an interesting uh, and and what i find is in other countries it's quite an inspiring example because they for them it strikes true that they would like to get that dynamic of a shared uh, attack on a common problem uh, by the different sectors social sectors absolutely and i guess it's 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 ambitious isn't it um i mean the sdgs are very ambitious but for some of these governments who uh, don't have very good data in some cases at all in some areas and, um, you know, the government in various states of uh, functioning health to hope for them to be able to work together, to, 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 to integrate it holistically or however in, in some way like that. But that does seem to be uh, a, a key aspect of the SDGs where, they, where they're covering so many different dimensions. Yes, I think there's never enough credit that can be given in my mind to two survey instruments, the Multiple Indicator Cluster Survey of UNICEF and the Demographic and Health Survey uh, funded by USAID. Thanks to them, we are data users at OFI, but thanks to them, we have data on every low-income country, nearly every least developed country, and we have subnational data as well. And 
the regularity of the surveys and you know the level of good data quality on these indicators, I think is not well known. Um, but uh, there's really a lot of credit to be given to them as well as to national surveys um, in in the different countries. But uh, so in terms of you know having data, very we're very lucky. But if it's Chad or if it's um, South Sudan or um, Niger, you know, the, there are survey data available that enable us really to look inside the country and try with these st- statistical offices from those countries to try to understand them better. Yes, yeah, yeah. but in terms of working together, we simply—it's—it's it's the countries that want to work on this that you know self-select and come forward. So the other nice thing about being a new idea is that you're not imposed by anybody. And it's yes. a coalition of the willing, and there's a kind of a freedom and a joy about it that maybe wouldn't be the case later if if it felt imposed or required. But also, you know, then hopefully we're attracting people who are, um, yeah, that there's a an authentic motivation for the work. Yes, it's a kind of a lab. You're seeing that, as you say, different countries, Colombia, Costa Rica, using it in different ways and seeing the tool you know, uh, unfold and, and um, as you say, that's been driven by their own needs and, 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 and interests. And uh, over time, you're going to have a, a, just a much richer sense of, of the different ways in which the, the tool can, can work. Um, now, the, the, I, I understand that it's used as well in the, the, the Bhutanese government's uh, Gross National Happiness Index. And I'm just wondering um, a little bit about that. It always seems like a fascinating uh, area, it's, uh, rather different from the approach of, <laughs> of the rest of the world. And I know, and I've spoken about this on the podcast before, about you know the challenges of using GDP measures uh, in, 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 in any case. Um, how's it going in Bhutan? <laughs> it's a really fascinating and creative country. So we had the privilege to work with them since 2008. Um, it's really the initiative of the royal government of Bhutan and some uh, people there to articulate, well, the idea of gross national happiness that was articulated by His Majesty the Fourth King. Um, and then the index of gross national happiness, as articulated by the government, has nine domains. And these include, people are often surprised, they include normal things like education, health, and living standards. So income is an index in the GNH index. It's an indicator. But then they include also governance, um, time use, and the environment. Yes. And then innovative domains like community, vitality, cultural diversity and resilience, and psychological well-being. And psychological well-being is not just... Um, positive and negative affect, like joy and generosity or anger and frustration, but it's also your satisfaction with your life overall. And then being Bhutan, um, whatever faith or religion you are, it's a kind of, you know, uh, spirituality um, or the use of meditation. So it's an innovative index in bringing together really material things like housing, jobs, the number of days you are healthy and can work, um, very tangible things with did you sleep enough? Um, And is the government, are you aware of human rights? Do you participate in the government? How are the government services provided to you to, you know, do you feel that there is courtesy in your community? Do you feel a sense of belonging? And so I, I'm a little bit surprised other governments haven't taken this up because it's a beautiful way of, again, for the same person looking into different rooms of their life 
and not, you don't have to have enough of everything because we have different priorities in our life. Yes. And so they, you know, but if you're deprived in half of them, uh, then according to Bhutan, you would not be happy because that, that's clearly a, a deprivation that's gone too far. But the happiest person in the Bhutan survey happened to be an illiterate person. You know, so you may not need an education to have genuine well-being. So it allows for diversity and, and also the ingenuity of, of people in finding their own routes to fulfillment. I think the other interesting thing as a policy tool is that it tracks things that are going well and things that are going not so well. And so between 2010 and 2015, there was a growth in happiness in GNH. So overall, like we talk about economic growth, we could talk about growth in GNH. But you, because of the structure of the measure, you could break it down and you could see that services had gone up, health had gone up, um, income, housing, material standards had gone up. But the things that had gone down were interesting because it was a sense of belonging and it was the positive emotions had gone down and anger and frustration had come up a bit. Mm. And so it's really sensitizing you as the country urbanizes, as it's exposed to modernity. There's some things that are going really well and there are other things that may be a uh, cause for conversation. And there's no right answer, but it's delivering information to people so they can reflect on it and make an informed choice about, in a sense, what parts of life fully considered they wish to cultivate more. Yes, it's a, a, a great inspiration. I was in Bhutan uh, a couple of years ago and um, it would that other countries would move in that direction and we get a richer sense of the, these 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 measures of happiness and and other uh, human potential, and um, but that's uh, great to, to to hear about that. What's what next for the MPI? You've talked about um, the number of countries that are growing that are using it. Some of them using it in in more uh, uh, tailored ways to their own needs. Um, wh wh where do you see this going next? Where, wh wh what's your research focus? Right. Well, some of it is on the national MPIs. There's a lot more uptake in, in, in Africa, in South Asia, East Asia. It had begun really in Latin America. Um, another really active area for us is child MPIs um, for individual children aged 0 to 17, which are unusually difficult because you're comparing babies to teenagers, and there's quite a long distance between them. And you're, but you're really trying to think for each age bracket – what are the deprivations that are comparable and that constitute child poverty and that policy can change? And so you're looking at children of different genders, different ages, and coming up with a common set of indicators. So that's a, a new area. Gendered M measures are, are a key area. And there what's difficult is to compare reproductive health and employment, where it includes house duties and caring and duties um, across men and women and really identify what is deprivation. Um, in different contexts. Um, so we can do simple gendered measures, but doing ones that really reflect people's preferences is uh, a step uh, ahead of where we are right now. And then we are doing a lot of decompositions by disability status, by ethnicity. Obviously, we're, we looked at 34 countries across time. Now we're doubling that. And we'll, our next study will have nearly 70 countries across time. And we'll not only have the descriptive, but we'll also have analysis of, you know, what is the elasticity of changes to growth, of changes to social investment in priority social sectors, of different governance and institutional regimes. So really trying to figure out what are the determinants of the fastest reduction of MPI 
um, so that not only at the national level, but also sometimes it's better to do it subnationally for the same country because they're more comparable in a sense. Um, so we'll be doing a, a set of studies on that. And um, we're also looking at evaluation of impacts. Uh, uh, and I think the last thing uh, is we're always asking what are the missing dimensions, whether it's empowerment or whether it's social isolation, social connectedness, uh, whether it's better measures of violence, how do we make it easy for national statistic offices to bring in, if they want to, some of these dimensions that often are raised by participatory consultations with poor people and communities, but often are not present in existing survey instruments. Yes, yes. One question I need to ask, sustainability, the environment, where does that fit in? Oh, I should have said, of course, that's, a, that's an area for us. <laughs> Um, now, some poverty measures um, can include environmental deprivations if those deprivations strike the same household at the same time as the other poverty deprivations. So something like a famine, a drought, a flood, um, an earthquake, the attack of elephants on your field or of boar or of deer, um, a forest fire. Those are examples or very high air pollution where we can put them together and actually have an environmental dimension on an MPI. There are also in de deprivations that strike people at the same time, but that are um, more person-specific, like an occupational hazard, and we can't put them into a general MPI. And then there are environmental deprivations like climate change that have a different time frame, and so we can't put them into an MPI, but we can do joint analysis, mapping, uh, modeling. And so we, what we've done is do a taxonomy of the different interrelationships between poverty and the environment, and then try to hone in on the, the low-hanging fruit, which is when countries wish to incorporate them into an MPI, what data can we rigorously use? Right. And is that something you see uh, growing in importance? Because you do see more uh, policymakers and more thinkers talking about the relationship between you know, climate change and poverty and uh, you know, who, who, where the impacts hit worst I think if we get it right, it will be important. I think the key is not to overwhelm policymakers. The SDGs are overwhelming. Yes, yes. And if the MPI grows to have you know 40 indicators, it will also be overwhelming. One of its virtues is being small enough that you can remember what it has in it. Yes. And uh, clear enough that you can really try to try to fight it, try to make change. And so I think it's very important to do well, but quite incisively and succinctly. And we haven't done it yet. We haven't gotten there, but we will try. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sabine, for taking the time today and sharing this uh, great work you're doing. I wish you the very best of uh, luck in, in the future and success with it all. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.